Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. So we've just we've just had this discussion for anyone who's joining us later um, by podcast. We've just as a group we've had this discussion about what these different metaphors for rest in the, this poem might mean for us. Which ones feel invitational? Which ones feel off-putting? Why that might be? And and the one that leads me into what I want to talk about a bit this, uh, today comes close to the end of the poem that we were using as our point of entry. So I'm going to read that poem out loud so that it's. Uh, available to people who don't have it in their hands in print in some other settings and uh, and then I'll tell you which one stuck for me and, and why and I'll just let that lead into a little bit of other reflection. Rest is real life conversations. I don't know any other way to go. Rest is the roadmap, the guiding force, a truth teller. Rest is a meeting with self with a typed agenda. Rest is on your knees whispering words silently on the right side of the bed. Rest is lunchtime dreaming, the energy of the Rastafarian who showed me how to pray standing up with my eyes open, hands stretched wide, because how will you see and no one prayers are answered? Rest is holy oil from my mama's wooden dresser, Pompeian olive oil, the fancy kind, in glass, blessed by the elders, poured over our heads as we rebuke the devil. Rest is the laying on of hands, a force field, all around you. Rest is a dream made real, a portal, an honest place, a trusting place, a sacred refuge, a dissertation length longing. Rest works. Rest dreams. Infinite power moving, care surrounding us. Rest is a gift and an antenna an ancient call dangling on the tips of tongues from a head lightly connected on a silk pillow. Rest is holding us close. Rest is home. Uh, If you felt like nodding off while I was reading that, all that means is that you need rest way more than you need to hear me reading Trisha Hersey's poem, and you should pay attention to that. The the, the phrase in here that, that stuck for me is uh, and the picture that I found most compelling is from these lines. Rest is a gift and an antenna, an ancient call dangling on the tips of tongues. And in particular, this idea that rest, and especially rest as resistance, which is Hersey's core premise, um, it, that, that, it's a, that it could be a gift, uh, an antenna, an ancient call, that got my attention. Um, I'm always personally, this is just the way I'm wired and the way my thoughts have gone over the years, I'm always on the lookout for places where the ancient seems to be surviving and maybe even thriving in the midst of the contemporary. For me, those intersections point to the places where our culture making in our contemporary setting comes closer to being in touch with what we've previously called in this space reality. 
And uh, just a little quick refresher, the definition of reality that I'm referring to when I use that term in this context is this one. This is Philip K. Dick's definition. Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, does not go away. <laughs> so it doesn't depend on your believing in it. That's what's real. And uh, Loyal Rue, in a book of his called Religion is Not About God, frames that idea this way. He says, if we live at odds with reality, brackets foolishly, then we will be doomed. But if we live in proper relationship with reality, brackets wisely, then we shall be saved. So congruence with reality is what saves us or condemns us or dooms us as a species in his work. Heard a documentary this past week, radio documentary, that pulled some of these thoughts together in one of those, it was kind of an ancient contemporary story. And the story was a radio doc, and it was about how some Inuit communities in northern Quebec are taking back the care of expectant mothers right through their, their labor and delivery. I found it to be an incredibly moving story about lots of different things. Living in accord with reality was one of the things that resonated for me. Decolonizing was another strong aspect of that story. And in particular, for me, some of the audio from one of the Inuit midwives talking about how much she loves her small hands. She loves them because they are wise and they are skillful. And she talked over and over again about how much she loves especially turning babies before their delivery so they're in the position they need to be in to be born in as healthy a way as possible. And she talked in that about speaking to the babies and working with the babies in a cooperative way to see to their safe passage into this world. Now, as a person who grew up around Western medicine, contemporary you know, modern medicine. It was like, I listened to that, and it was like listening to someone speak about something I thought I knew a little bit about, except they were talking a different language. I mean, it was in English in terms of the actual, but it was like, hmm? You know? Like, it, it was like it pinged off the Teflon of my <coughs> deeply embedded understanding of how the world works. I grew up very aware of a particular psalm that talks about this notion that God knew me and you and each person and knows each person even before we're born. This will be familiar to some of you depending on your own context. There's Psalm 139, 13 to 16. I'm going to read it in case it's not familiar, okay? For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my physicality, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Man, I could unpack that notion for a long time. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So familiar text to some people in the room, I'm sure. Maybe not to everybody. Having grown up familiar with that text and some of the ideas in that text... I'm, I'm listening to this Inu midwife speaking to an as-yet-to-be-delivered baby and inviting their full partnership in a safe and healthy birth, and that conversation comes as a surprise to me. And when I sat back from it a little bit and I thought about that experience of the surprise, I felt both a bit puzzled by the surprise and a bit sad. Why would it be in the tradition I grew up in, in terms of religious traditions, why would it be that even those familiar with such a text 
wouldn't tend to speak that way to an unborn child in the birthing process. Anybody here ever been in a delivery room and heard somebody on the catcher's mitt end of this experience talking to the baby directly as though they actually expected collaboration? Maybe, but the odds are slim. If you had a doula, that might be a different story. If you were delivered by a midwife. Why would that be? That's a, a compelling question for me. In fact, this goes a little further in my experience. Why would it be that people from within the tradition for which the text that I read would be regarded as a sacred text, why would it be that it was people from within that tradition, missionaries in this case, who came to the Inuit people and said, you can't trust those old ways. You need to learn to abandon those, and you need to go do whatever the person at the nursing station tells you to do, including getting on an airplane and flying someplace where you don't know the language, you don't eat the food, you don't have any community supports, and then you can have your baby. Hmm. Why would that happen? Why would people within a tradition that taught that the divine fully knows the unborn before their birth be so resistant to collaborating with another known being connected by the divine to secure its own well-being? That's interesting to me. Maybe. I'll speculate a bit. Maybe we don't. Maybe we didn't take that text seriously enough. Maybe we kind of thought that was an interesting religious notion, but didn't actually mean very much in the real world. That it kind of was hived off to a, you know, a, it was a religious thing. But the rest of life, it doesn't work like that. Maybe we're leery of the downside of regarding an unborn child as a partner in their birth experience, because then what will we do with our feelings when something goes wrong? We just added a lot of complexity, don't you think? Maybe it's all just so mysterious. Maybe it's so utterly foreign to us the same way rest can be, that we lean away from it instead of into it, that we kind of hand it off to the medical folks and to technology instead of putting our hands on it, as it were, and learning to trust the bodies involved, those doing the laboring, those being born, those skillfully assisting. I'm speculating, and it's not exhaustive, of course. As I've said lots of times before in this space, when I explore these sort of intersections, I am not interested in denigrating the benefits of modern science or medicine. Half of fully, at least half of our own kids are in the world because they needed and received some skillful assistance from modern medical professionals in making their entry into the world. I am not brushing that aside. Also, it was fascinating to hear the Inuit midwives in this documentary talk about that exact intersection of ancient practices and modern medicine in ways that were profoundly collaborative rather than adversarial. There was a fundamental difference of perspective in that conversation that I found intriguing and very powerful and that both of those things could be drawn on with wisdom and with kindness. There was a bigger set of values within which those otherwise possibly competing values could function and work well together. That said, when I hear a story like that or when I think more seriously about sort of the wider cultural assumptions that tend to sometimes heedlessly govern the way that we think life is or the way life has to be, I feel as though we could easily lose sight of something deeply significant here about being human and being more fully human. So here's a question for me anyway. How can we probe that? What can we do to begin to heal the rift between, if we want to characterize it this way, the ancient and the contemporary, or to strengthen the collaboration between what we know by way of what we might call spirit and what we know by way of what we might call science? 
and I'm not trying to make those a binary, but I, I do want to contrast them because in many ways they function as different things in our culture and in our personal experience. One of those possible linkages is rest. It's a rhetorical question in part for me. It's also an open question for me. But I think part of the redress is serious rest, rest as resistance to dehumanizing. That's one possible portal through which we might enter into this kind of a reconsideration, I think. I think that rest, I think Hersey's right, at least this is why the lines resonated for me, I think that rest can be a gift and an antenna, an ancient call dangling on the tips of tongues. You know, right there, but not quite, right? That's what that line evokes for me. It's like, I can taste it, but what, but what is it, <laughs> right? It's foreign, it's, it's novel, it's unknown, but it's, but it's real. Now what do I do? That, that idea, dangling on the tips of tongues, when I bring that back to religious tradition and knowledge of a text like that, like Psalm 139, and I think about the actions of missionaries informed by those texts and some of those values, but also co-opted by the notions of modernity, standing on the back of Greco-Roman thought. and Anyway, all of those values, right? That whole big bundle that informs the way we do medicine, for example, in our culture, predominantly. When I think about that kind of stuff, I think it's interesting that that the same ideas that are so mysterious in those texts were right on the tips of the tongues of the exact same people that may have caused such harm in these communities based on values that were in many cases historically and in many cases continue to be defended by those values from the text as they are understood by those interpreters of the text. I think if you go back to Psalm 139, honestly, and you think about the psalmist kind of reflecting on the mystery of being formed by a divinity in the depths of the earth, you get, you got to have a whole big rethink about your cosmology right there because depths of the earth is not where I grew up believing God lives. <laughs> that was out in the sky, right? But no, this was, this was the earth. This was a, the earth is a living participant in the formation of the divine human for the psalmist. We, you know, we ignore that. We just didn't quite read carefully enough or we just read it the way we like, but it's right there in the words, right? So anyway, that stuff. So how can we get from here to there? From the sort of ways of seeing and believing that ignore or even denigrate or dismiss ancient wisdom rather than raising our antenna so we can receive the gift that hovers just beyond us. One of my, one of my buddies is a songwriter and he says... Um, and a good one. And, and he likes to say, I don't really do much. I just got to make sure I've got my, my catcher's mitt up when the song comes along. Because if I don't have my catcher's mitt up, it goes right past me and then Bruce Coburn gets it. <laughs> anyway, right? So the antenna is the, the value of that metaphor, right? How do, we, how do we pay attention to these things? In the story that I heard told in that documentary, there was a moment where things turned. And I don't have all the details, as is often the case when I tell, retell these stories. I was driving when I heard it. I haven't gone back and written down the explicit bits, but in terms of, of the details. But th- I know that this was just a few years ago that this happened. This is a true story. Northern Quebec, Inuit community, expectant Inuit woman. She's been told by the staff at the nursing station that she's now at the point in her pregnancy where she must get on a plane to fly south to some city to have her baby. And she... She said, no, I'm not getting on the plane. I'm not doing it. And, <laughs> and that started something. And when the, the Inu woman 
who, who was a now retired midwife and sort of an iconic figure in this community and is in this shift, when she's telling the story, she described that woman as the Inu Rosa Parks, a famous black woman who just refused to go sit at the back of the bus and became, you know, both an iconic moment and also a very important voice in a revolution that's still getting underway. She knew that what she was being told to do wasn't something that she needed to do and that she could not be at peace, at rest with. That refusal inspired a sea change that means that, among other things, there are now several centers in that region that provide support for expectant women close to their geographic communities, familiar foods, language, family and cultural supports, as well as access to Western medical information and support. To put this into the context of this exploration, how can rest help us move what is on the tips of our tongues, metaphorically speaking, things that we sense but we don't know how to quite articulate? What can help us to begin to give voice to whatever that is? How can rest help us to attenuate our antenna? How can rest help us to humbly approach and begin to open the gifts of wisdom, strength, and love that might hold the key to a better present and a better future, perhaps? What if that discomfort that we feel when we stop to rest, (laughs) what if the discomfort that we feel when we stop to rest is like the beginning of the hug that that you were describing? The part where we're like, gah. (laughs) you know just bound up with whatever it is that's in us and when we actually receive the safety of someone's literal embrace in the case of a story of a physical hug we can let those things go that's both an embodied lived experience but it's also a metaphor isn't it it's also a bigger question about what do we do as people with one another collectively when we're making culture and meaning um, to help facilitate that kind of a world where we could have we could live like that or more like that can you imagine? What I want to do here is turn to, uh, to Hersey again because lived experience and, uh, and just leave us with some of her words because her practice and work has been with thousands of people in this realm and, and that's how she's accrued many of the insights she has in the book. She runs, the, she runs these NAP events all over the world, right? <laughs> Where they set up a space that's conducive to rest and they advertise and they invite people to come and they do. And for half an hour, they rest. And when they wake up, often because many of them fall asleep, as you could imagine, the conversations, the the debrief is fascinating. Um, Not surprisingly, perhaps, to many of us, having reflected on this even a little, it's, it's often accompanied by insight, tears, confusion, but also hope and sense of restoration and for many people it's this profound sense of like why why didn't I like why why did it take so long to just you know to stop anyway out of all of that wisdom um, I want to read us I want to read us this there's there's so many different directions we could go from here uh, even in terms of our community but but what I want to point out from what I'm going to read from Hersey here is that this is not about a new formula this is not a this is not a uh, this is not a three steps to learning to rest kind of thing. It's a little more mysterious than that. But I would, I would encourage you, as with the poem, just listen to this and let it wash over you and um, be open to what might be here for you. 
I want us to understand, writes Hersey, that nuance is freeing and freedom. There is no such thing as cookie-cutter healing. Everyone brings with them an origin story, a history, and identities that are interconnected. There is room to rest in the freedom of managing your own deprogramming journey. It is never either or and always both and. You don't have to grind, hustle, accept burnout as normal, and be in a constant state of exhaustion and sleep deprivation. You don't have to kill yourself spiritually or physically to live a fruitful life. This connection work is about restoring, remembering, reimagining, reclaiming, reparations, and redemption. Learning to make a way out of no way and seeing to the other side of trauma. It is believing you are worthy of rest because you are alive. Our bodies and souls want to be well, to heal, to be rested, and to be free from the hold productivity has over our lives. We are worthy now of rest, care, and space. We are worthy now of living in a place that respects our bodies for what they are, a divine dwelling. Peace.